Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello there, and you are very welcome to this special St. Patrick's Day edition of the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today, festooned in shamrock and dressed from head to toe in Kelly Green, are political editor Pat Leahy and political correspondent Jennifer Bray. Uh, Top of the morning to both of you. Top of the morning. Be Jesus and be Gara. I have to confess straight away that we are not actually recording this on St. Patrick's Day, but we are St. Patrick's Day adjacent. And uh, we sent out a message to our listeners a few days ago saying that we would like questions from them about the politics of COVID because we are pretty much exactly one year on. I think for Irish people in particular, we locate the start of this this lockdown process around the time of the St. Patrick's uh, Day week last year in 2020. So what have we learned from how Ireland has coped or not with the pandemic, looking at it particularly through a political framework? I have to say that a couple of people responded to this question by saying, that's not a very festive subject to be discussing on St. Patrick's Day, is it? Which I have to confess in turn that I've never thought of St. Patrick's Day is a particularly festive day. It's a rather a rather grim day in my experience. But maybe you guys, maybe your experience is different. What do you think of Patrick's Day, Pat? It's my favourite day of the year, Hugh. Well, at least you're named after it, I suppose. What about you, Jennifer? Um, I don't really have any strong thoughts about it, but I do tend to avoid people on St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> I should say that on March the 16th, the Irish Times printed pretty much a full page of a thank you from the editor um, to us, as well as to you, our readers and listeners and, and viewers, because it is now exactly a year since we started producing the newspaper remotely. Um, and we haven't been in the office, most of us, or barely at all, since um, for pretty much exactly a year now, really, I suppose, with the exception of the people who produce the newspaper, who print the newspaper in City West, who, of course, have to be at work. And I've done a, done a great job with that as well. So it's been a kind of fascinating process, I think, for all of us. I don't think we ever imagined we'd find ourselves in a situation like this, but here we are. And I'm going to go to a first question because it kind of touches on this in a way. It comes from Paddy Mulrow, and his question is as follows. I'm presuming political correspondents and reporters are more isolated from the general populace than normal. They see a narrower range of people. They come in contact with fewer teachers or barmen or taxi drivers, waitresses or hairdressers. But correspondents are still regularly attending press conferences with media colleagues and decision makers and Probably they're also in pretty more frequent phone and Zoom contact with fellow journalists, civic society leaders, politicians, apparatchiks, bureaucrats, etc. Social media is a counterbalance, but Twitter, etc. is a very unrepresentative sample. So put simply, says Paddy, does this mixing with mostly elite level actors and reliance on social media make political analysis more difficult and potentially skewed? Pat? Um, yeah, it's a very good question, to be honest, and uh, it is something that I think needs to be uppermost in our minds, particularly uh, in these circumstances, but all the time. And Paddy is, is, is right. Yeah, we're, we're confined to, to barracks for most of the time, but not all of the time. I, I speak to you here from my oak-panelled studies as the, the austere portraits of former political editors look down uh, upon me. And, uh, you know, 
like everybody else, or like an awful lot of people, we've been at home deprived of uh, of contact, the normal contact that we would have daily with uh, with politicians of uh, of all levels, and that has certainly restricted the sort of flow of information into us. Now, you know, I, I, I suppose what I, I mean, Jen can speak to this herself of her experience, but my experience is what we miss most is the sort of serendipity of life in Leinster House, where there's a few places you can simply go and loiter with intent and bump into people. And that's a really important source of information for us. And that information flow has been, of course, restricted. And that must have implications for our reporting and for our analysis. Now, it's something we're conscious of. And we are, of course, you know, working the phones, working WhatsApp, working text messages uh, harder than ever. But it is only an inferior substitute, I think, for meeting people face to face, for having coffee with people, for having lunch with people and kind of getting that sort of multi-layered view of what is happening in government and in the wider political world. And we do miss it. I hope that our reporting and our analysis isn't, you know, too much poorer for its absence. But it is certainly something that we have uh, we've struggled to deal with over the last year. Jenna, I, I, I take it you probably agree with that, but there's also the broader point in the question, which might be more, you know, is, is often levelled at journalists anyway, which is that, you know, we all work in a bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps the suggestion here is the bubble is even more bubbly at the moment, um, that we're not interacting that much even with the chief's subjects of our journalism, in your case, politicians, but that we're kind of cut off from the effects of their decisions on the ground as well. Yeah, and I do think, I agree, Pat, I think it is a really, I think it's a really good question. And it is a a question that especially political journalists ask themselves even before the pandemic, because there is a perception that as a political correspondent, you work in Leinster House and you're in a bubble and you are in a bubble. That's the truth. Um, And sometimes you only really learn it when you go out on the election trail, um, which is what I learned a couple of years ago. It's just so important to get out um, of the bubble. Having said that, um, the truth is, I'll just be completely honest about this, is I've actually think the complete opposite has happened in a way. So I have found since covering the pandemic over the last year, I have never talked as much to our readers. I've never spoken as much to people from different industries. And I think the reason for that is because we go to these press conferences and we have to ask questions about what's going to open when, what supports are available to what businesses, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, things that reach into every corner of Irish life. And people know that we're there asking those questions and they want us to ask specific questions. Um, So I get emails from people who are, you know, taxi drivers, hairdressers, um, people whose family uh, are in care homes, um, people who run businesses, uh, restaurants. And I wouldn't have had that before. And that's the truth. You know, as a political journalist, I would have just dealt with politicians. And now I found that I'm dealing with people more often and it's because the stuff that we're covering in these conferences and the, and the questions that we're, we have the privilege of being able to ask um, and demand answers from politicians, it matters to so many people uh, at this time when it affects their lives. And I suppose the other aspect is, you know, we're also human beings in our own way. We have our own lives too. And 
you know, I've got family members who are on the, the PUP. You know, I know people who, I know taxi drivers who are out of work, um, you know, just because we're not necessarily out on Grafton Street or, you know, in the, you know, in, in counties or towns asking questions and Vox Pops doesn't mean that we're not connected to the real world and doesn't mean we don't have our own circumstances, which really very much open your eyes um, in terms of family and friends. So I think it's twofold. Uh, you know, I've got my own personal circumstances in my life where I can see the impact that this has had in various different ways on various different people. And then people, I'm talking to readers more and I'm talking to people who engage in the Irish Times more. And it has actually been really, really good. And it's been really rewarding. And it's nice to actually know if someone's reading my articles. <laughs> so that's good. There's actually a related question to this, uh, Pat, and I think it, it, it raises a very important question for all of us. It, it's from a particular perspective, as you'll, you'll hear here now, uh, from B. Moore, who contacted me on uh, Twitter. Here's one for you. Why is there a lack of dissent about the extreme measures still in force one year on? Why do so many in the commentariat have so little appreciation for people who have small businesses and who cannot work from home and who just want to go about their business? Now, in a way, Jen was was, was addressing that and was saying that, that, that that's actually not been, been her experience. But I think it illustrates one of the the difficulties that journalists have faced over the last year or so in that they're very often seen as perhaps as bad faith actors arguing from one perspective or another, um, in this case being pro-lockdown. Although I've equally, I've seen lots of, uh, lots of attacks on journalists for being anti-lockdown, supposedly. Yeah, I, I don't think that's true. I think there have been questioning... Of, I think there has been extensive questioning uh, of the severity of the lockdown and there has been advocacy, constant advocacy of the need for it to be eased. I've written a few of those pieces myself, the latest of them last Saturday. So I think that the perception of the listener that there has been no questioning of lockdown is is not right. I think it's wrong. I mean, on a political level, if we're looking at it, it's outside the commentariat at a political level and the, the debate that you hear from there. I think politicians were extremely chastened by what happened in December. Yeah. And I think the government and the public watched in horror as those figures went through the roof. Everybody did. Everybody was shocked. Even if you look at the NEFA projections, they did not predict that. Um, and I think that's partially why there's such a reluctance to have this conversation. So before, in the last phases of lockdown, you would have had industry bodies, various different sectors lobbying hard to get their sector reopened. And now I think there's a real reluctance to do that as publicly um, because of what happened in, in December, because we saw the direct and immediate impact on human life. And I don't know whether it's a commentary thing, but it's definitely, it's definitely a political thing. I mean, I'm just thinking, I know like Mark Paul in our paper has, um, has written uh, about this in the past, particularly as Jen uh, says before the, the the current lockdown about the need to reopen hospitality. Jennifer O'Connell has written extensively about the need to reopen schools. Say I've written about it uh, last week. So you know, and 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 as you pointed out, <laughs> in many cases we got dogs abuse on social media for it. I think if there is a perception that the media have been pro-lockdown, uh, I think it is probably fairer to direct that at RTE, which I think by and large has, just in the structure of its reporting, has been, I think, very amenable to the government's uh, message. There have, of course, been dissenting voices 
uh, on. But I think uh, much of uh, RTE's reporting have, has been strongly supportive of lockdown. So maybe that's where the perception is coming from. We'll move on to another question. This is uh, from Barry Burke, and it's it's a three-part question, if you don't mind. Uh, and it's about, it's about vaccines. Hi, all. My question is, given how slow the EU procurement of vaccines have been, should Ireland sign contracts with the makers of Sputnik V and the Chinese vaccine makers before EMA approval and allow Irish approval for their use? We have seen Hungary already approve them and now have 17 vaccines delivered per 100 people compared to Ireland's 11. Given my relatively young age and lucky to have no underlying medical conditions, I don't realistically see myself being vaccinated before September or October. Although some people may be reluctant to trust the Russian vaccines, it should be an option, particularly for younger age groups. Also, if the EMA approved the vaccine, and Ireland, like most EU countries, don't buy them, then legally a private company is quite entitled to purchase a supply from Russian vaccine makers and sell them at whatever cost they see fit. Should this be allowed? So there's quite a lot in there, but I suppose, Jen, one of the things is it touches on a very live debate at the moment because of the problems that we've had with supply, the um, criticisms of the performance of the European Commission in the rollout of supply of vaccines and further problems this week with AstraZeneca, that there is a sense that we could be doing better and that if the Irish government asserted more agency, by which I mean more ability to act in its own right, that we might be able to move faster than we're doing at the moment. But there's a counter-argument that that's not necessarily true. And to be honest, I'm a little bit bewildered by it. We did ask on a couple of these questions, we asked our health editor, Paul Cullen, to step in to give a little bit more uh, of his sort of technical expertise on it. And Paul, in relation to this question, he did say that at this point, there's probably little point in, and he's talking about buying up Sputnik, as it would take time for supplies to arrive and by then the overall supply situation should have improved. Officials are understandably wary of promoting vaccines that haven't been authorised through the normal mechanisms and any mishaps will inevitably tarnish the entire vaccine rollout. And you can, what he's implying there, I think, as well, is the fear of litigation, which is always prominent in the minds of, of uh, Irish organisations. Yeah, and um, it's, it is a question that's sort of doing the rounds a lot lately because of the situation we find ourselves in, which is, you know, in desperate need of vaccines, ASAP, which is pretty much the global situation, generally speaking. Um, and I think the question was about whether we should circumvent the processes that are there now, and I think specifically reference Sputnik. Now, the government line is that vaccines can only be approved uh, and used if they comply with all of the various regulations and requirements for safety set out in EU legislation. So basically, if it comes through the EMA approval process. But the EMA themselves, they have a stipulation that says that national regulators can grant temporary licenses in emergency situations. And other countries have done this. So we know Hungary unilaterally purchased vaccines. We know Austria and Denmark, now this is a longer term thing, but um, kind of broke ranks a little bit to go and form an, an alliance with Israel to produce second generation vaccines. Basically, and these would look at mutations and variants of COVID-19. So there are some European countries looking outside the process. But as our European correspondent Naomi O'Leary wrote, there aren't really any spare vaccines around. And that's the key thing at the moment, I think. Um, I think we have seven advanced purchase uh, agreements in place at the moment. Now, obviously, only a couple of those have, are, are through the entire, the, the final process. And the thing about the Sputnik vaccine is that there are questions around the factories that they will be produced in at the moment. There is no certainty, I think, that those uh, places where they're being manufactured are in line with the standards that they should be. 
Uh, having said all that, when this came up in the doll, Michal Martin was asked about it. And he said that if it's approved by the EMA, uh, we will have no problem and no difficulty uh, in using it. And the data on the vaccine itself is really interesting because there was a Lancet study which showed that, you know, I think it was like 90, 91% efficacy, which is which is very high. And those, I think there was a peer-reviewed study. So if the government plan is to use it, and if the situation is that when we get this bit further down the line, the supply does ramp up, then those questions hopefully will be moved. Like, it's definitely not for me to say, like, what medical experience do I have and um, whether we should unilaterally go outside of this mechanism. But I think that if the worst happens and if this much-promised, heralded ramping up of vaccines doesn't happen, that will be a big question if everything else goes wrong, yeah. Right. We'll, we'll actually, we'll move on to our next question, which comes from Hugh McInerney. Hi, Inside Politics. Love the podcast, wide variety of topics and interesting views, and the host is a great name too, that helps. I know you've touched on it a few times before, but my question would be, why is zero COVID still being dismissed? We put all our eggs in the vaccine basket, and with the recent AstraZeneca news, it seems said basket has been left on the roof of the car as we again speed off towards misery. The response of the government parties was, well, we'll be in permanent lockdown. But isn't that what we're in now? except it's far more inefficient than the first and the roads are much busier with many more people being made come into work. The mandatory quarantine for some countries and not others just seems to me to be the worst of both worlds. Following restrictions is certainly becoming more wearing when 10,000 people a week arrive in Dublin airport with the main reason given being holiday slash visit. All the best, Hugh. I mean, it's been a recurring theme, Pat, the question of zero COVID. There is a, a, a very strong, very articulate lobby, uh, which includes, you know, some respected members of the scientific community, uh, arguing that this should have been implemented way back um, last spring, and that there is still strong merit in in this approach, which would involve closing the borders, including the border with Northern Ireland, or very strictly controlling it, a range of very strict lockdown measures, with the prospect held out that after a number of weeks or a period of time, that you'd actually be able to open up parts of the economy much more. Is that what? What do you make of the way the whole zero COVID debate has how it has unfolded over the last the last year or so? I think there's two points about it at the moment, Hugh. The first is that I think as an argument, maybe its time was 12 months ago rather than now, or as a policy prescription, its time might have been 12 months ago as uh, as opposed to now. The vaccine programme, albeit uh, slow and stuttering and beset by the problems that we all know, is underway. There is, you know, by the time you get into the second quarter, we are promised that there'll be a million uh, shots a month will be uh, will be administered. So I think the 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 argument that you know you need to go into a very severe lockdown now it, it has been somewhat bypassed or, or somewhat overtaken rather by uh, by the the vaccine program. Um, the other point I, I think uh, to be made about it is I, I'm not sure it has been fairly spelled out to people the measures that would be required to get to zero covid so the idea that the uh, the idea that you know that you seal the border with northern ireland uh, because you either have to seal the border with northern ireland or seal the border between northern ireland and uh, and great britain and for political reasons clearly that's not going to happen so you're left with sealing the border in ireland um uh, is 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 one that i don't think 
has great practical merit. And I'm not sure that um, for all, you know, the sincerity in their, uh, for the sincerity with which they hold their views and have expressed them, I'm not sure that the zero COVID people have been that clear about what actually sealing the border means in practical terms. I heard one of their advocates on the radio last weekend talking about, uh, you know, uh, I think the radio host is making the point that, you know, COVID um, the, the cases are on the floor in Kerry, you know, couldn't you open up Kerry? And of course, you you could open up Kerry, but only if you sealed the border with uh, with with Limerick and uh, and with Cork. And I just don't think that that is a realistic and practical policy uh, policy suggestion. I do think that, um, and perhaps we were all slow uh, to wake up to it twelve months ago, that the argument for zero COVID in the absence of uh, of a vaccine, or before we had endured the lockdowns that we uh, have for much of the last twelve months, uh, I, you know, I think that might have made more uh, more sense then. But at this point in uh, proceedings, it's hard to see how it does. Jen, I do think looking at this question, I think of we, we don't actually have a an answer from Paul Cullen on this, but I, I know from reading him that he has a view um, which I would tend to agree with, which is that Ireland has had particularly hard lockdowns over the last 12 months by comparison with most equivalent countries in Europe. Our schools have been closed for longer. We've shut down more businesses and more of hospitality um, for longer. And that one of the reasons for that is because alternative ways of suppressing or mitigating COVID, such as a really active track and trace regime, have never been properly implemented. And we still hear stories a year on about people entering information onto, you know, physical spreadsheets and they don't have the resources and they don't have the technology. So I suppose the zero COVID argument is we've been in that really hard lockdown for most of the last year anyway. So, you know, why not do this with the added benefits which it supposedly gives? Yeah, um, I think, though, that if the countries you look at who implemented zero COVID successfully, like New Zealand, um, have their own unique characteristics. And they did this, as Pat said, at the very beginning. And the situation now, I think, is that the disease and the prevalence of the disease is so much further rooted in the community and across the country. And I disagree when I when you say that we're kind of in that situation anyway in terms of lockdown. We're not really, you know, we've seen, like I think all primary school students now um, back in school and, you know. Yes, they are. <laughs> which uh, some, some members of the political team may be slightly, you know, just, just a little bit happy about. But I think, you know, the, the, the question that Hugh asked, um, other Hugh, uh, when he said that it's being dismissed. I think that's exactly the right word. It is being dismissed by the political system. And I think I was struck by comments made by Stephen Donnelly in the Dáil recently when he was asked this. And it kind of came up, not specifically in the context of a debate about zero COVID, but in a debate generally about, about uh, the coronavirus. And he said basically that, if I was to summarise what he was saying, he said, if politicians want zero COVID, um, they will need to be able to stand over exactly what that means in terms of lockdown measures. And effectively what he was saying was that would mean lockdown, the harshest lockdown until the autumn. So he gave a couple of examples, actually. He said that it would mean level five until maybe as late as November. Now, he was 
kind of speculating, but I presume he's getting this from briefings that he has. I presume he's not just plucking this out of the air. Um, and he said it would require not opening the schools, uh, going back to two kilometre um, travel restrictions. And we all know how difficult people are finding the 5K, let alone 2K. And it would require also a great deal of enforcement. No construction, no education, no business, no coffee shops to pick up your coffee from when you're going for a walk. Nothing. That's what he is saying. And he's saying, as far as the government are concerned, the political reality is, is there actually a politician out there willing and able uh, to stand over that? And I don't think there is a great political appetite for that, to be honest, after everything people have been through. Another question I would have about that, Hugh, just to finish on that, is whether, never mind the political appetite for it, is there a public appetite for it? And I'm not entirely convinced that there is. There may certainly be a public appetite for its results, but not for the measures required to, uh, to get there. Not at this stage uh, anyway, whatever, about 12 months ago. And then there's the other aspect of, I think another part of the question was addressing um, how galling it is to see people flying into the country um, and listing holidays as a reason. I mean, look at the debate around putting in place mandatory quarantine. There are people in government who didn't want to do that and don't really necessarily believe uh, that it's that that's going to that's going to work, you know. And that would be just one element of uh, a zero COVID plan. And I just think, in theory, we would all love zero COVID. I think in practice, I personally would hate it because. I find the level of restrictions now very difficult the further we go on. And I, from people I know, I just don't know if there is an appetite for that. Right. We will move on to another question, which I think is a question which is going to become more and more salient as this uh, year wears on. It's from Michael Wickham Moriarty. Hello to you and the panel. I'm sending this message from Zambia. Um, Zambia, like many countries around the world, has yet to receive a single dose of vaccine and has no real timetable for doing so. There have been proposals made to the WTO to waive patent rules on an emergency basis, but these have not succeeded. Do the panel see any scenarios in which the government would support radical action to increase global uh, vaccine supply? Um, I'm really interested in the subject just generally because anything COVID, anything vaccine, I, I don't know, I'm obsessed with it and I read about it from first thing in the morning to the last thing at night. Um, and... I read a really interesting statistic, which was that, now I hope I don't garble this, but that high income countries represent less than 20% of the world's population. I think it's 16%, but they've purchased more than half of all of COVID-19 vaccines. So what that means is you've situations in countries whereby you will have in one country a low risk person being vaccinated ahead of a frontline healthcare worker in another country. And We've heard, though it hasn't been that loud in terms of the political debate, this argument that if we're going to come out of this thing, we have to come out of it together. Because if we get all the vaccines in Ireland and finally it goes great and it doesn't happen in another neighbouring country or country nearby or any country and the disease is let become extremely prevalent and there are more mutations and more variants, that obviously has a knock-on impact for the rest of the world, like purely in a selfish way, let alone in an ethical way. Um, and, you know, I think when you look at the way that the the spread of the vaccines has panned out, there is this COVAX group. And basically the, the, the aim of COVAX is that all the countries pool in together 
and they buy vaccines on their own behalf, but on behalf um, of uh, poorer countries. But yet countries are still doing private deals with companies, uh, with vaccine companies in order to get their own vaccines. And some of that is down to the political reality of the situation that we've seen in countries where there's elections coming up, for example, in Israel. Look at what's happened there. They are the global front runner. And I have to think that some of that dog, like really hard headedness must have come from a political motivation to come out on top. And I find that really depressing and also really not surprising knowing politicians as they do. Um, so I think that there there have been suggestions made that richer countries could. One example was you give one in 10 of your vaccines to a poorer country. And I think that'd be a really interesting debate to have here in Ireland. Would people be accepting and willing, even in the circumstance we're in now where there isn't enough, there aren't enough vaccines and we have major supply problems, even in those circumstances when it matters the most now, which right now, would we be willing to give one out of 10 vaccines to, to poorer countries? And I don't know. And I've had this conversation with friends and family and the responses haven't, it, you know, it wasn't a matter of people saying, yes, of course we should. It's the ethical and right thing to do. And if we want to come out of this pandemic together, well, et cetera, et cetera. It was more like, well, you know, my 70 year old, you know, aunt or whatever hasn't got it. And how is it, you know, it opens up this whole question. And I think that the debate here about the equitable spread of vaccines, I don't think it has been fully addressed or at least not given perhaps the prominence um, that it should. Also, Pat, Michael's question was was about what the Irish government's policy might be or should do. And this strikes me that it's like one of these um, situations a little bit like the Irish government's approach to regulation of social media and technology companies, which happen to have their European bases here, that you know, baser political motives may be, uh, may be at play that would make it unlikely for this or maybe any Irish government to break with the European consensus on this. No, Ireland will absolutely stay with the European consensus on this. I would say, though, that it seems impossible to imagine it now, but within a relatively short period of time, as in before the end of the year, we will get to the stage where we have too many vaccines and much of the rich world will have most or all uh, of its people vaccinated and will have a glut of vaccines. I think, realistically speaking, it's at that point that governments and bodies such as the EU will look to uh, sharing their vaccines with the developing world. As to whether individuals and political systems within rich countries would be willing to share their vaccines with poorer countries before now. I think that that question is unlikely uh, is unlikely to come up for governments until all or nearly all of their their own populations are vaccinated. But as I say, we will reach that position quicker than people might think. And I think that the challenge will then be for governments to assist developing countries to A, to keep producing at the rate that is required and B, to assist developing countries, many of which, of course, have very underdeveloped health systems to get those into, uh, to get the jabs into arms as quickly as possible. Speaking of the government, uh, here's another question. It comes from Josh Solan. And it's as follows. For years, Fianna Fáil have suffered for their management of the country leading up to and during the 2008 crash. And that's still used to date as a stick to beat them with. So 
Being young at the time, says Josh, I'm not an expert on that situation, but I can imagine the government of the day was quote-unquote forced into some of the bad and unpopular decisions at the time, the troika, the debt markets, etc. But my question for the panel is whether they think the government's handling of COVID will become a new stick, i.e. does the criticism have legs, and does it, will it resonate with the public long term, and is it an unlucky time for Fianna Fáil to be in government again? Jenna, interesting focus on Fianna Fáil rather than the other members of the government obviously there, but there is... You know, there is, there is a point there, isn't it, that, that the long rehabilitation of Fianna Fáil, which has stuttered a little bit over the over the last while, and there's a certain irony, politically anyway, that they found themselves back in power just in time for the next crisis. Yeah, isn't it interesting? You're right that it was kind of focused towards Fianna Fáil. And that's, it. I think, especially interesting because actually when you talk to people about how the government is doing or whatever, it does seem to land an awful lot in Fianna Fáil. Now, maybe that's because Micheál Martin is the Taoiseach. And, you know, there is a certain element of that being the driving force, but it's it's an ancillary point on it, but it is interesting. And I do think um, it is an unlucky time for them to be in government. Um, and, you know, because all of the things you would want to do when you take up office, the first few months are supposed to be quite exciting almost. You know, you've got new ministers getting their feet under the table, planning their agenda, you know, like reforming things, progressive ideas, you know, all the stuff that they're, Basically, the first few months, the honeymoon phase, that just did not exist. It didn't happen. Um, and in fact, the first couple of weeks for this government was torrid. And it was just controversy after controversy. And it was not a fun time for them. Um, so all those big wind, all those big ideas, they're out the window. They're gone. And everything now is about pandemic and um, I suppose addressing the pandemic. And not only the health aspect of it, but as time goes on, and it will become more and more impor- important as time goes on, the financial aspect particularly. So I think like in terms of criticism, it's obviously absolutely fair that questions are asked about the sizable bumps in the road that we've experienced in terms of handle, their handling of the of the pandemic. But I sometimes get the feeling that perhaps we're at a tipping point in that everything that they have done so far that went wrong, they've almost been able to point the finger and say, it wasn't me, it was him. You know, it, it wasn't me, it was AstraZeneca. It, it wasn't our targets that are missed. It's the deliveries that didn't come in. Um, it's not our fault that the, the programme was delayed by three weeks. It was the NIAC saying, you know, mRNA or, or the chief medical officer saying mRNA vaccines only for a certain age cohort. So there's been opportunities for them to say, we're doing great, things are actually fine. It's these problems. I think in the next phase, the mass vaccination phase, where the things that will matter will be logistics being organised, that will be crucial. And I think if they get in all these vaccines as promised and they bungle it, I think there will be fury. I really do. And you can understand why, because people's lives have been on hold. And they've said repeatedly, everything to this phase, kind of not our fault. Everything in the next phase, I think the stakes, I think stakes are high. And I don't mean that in a dramatic way. I mean it realistically. I mean it in a dramatic way. Dramatic. I think the stakes are incredibly high for the government over the next two months. I think Jen is absolutely right that it matters the the, the next phase, the management the management of the reopening, and those decisions. Uh, many of them will be made over the next uh, the next couple of weeks, and the rollout of the vaccine. We're constantly told from inside government that the. Uh, that despite the difficulties they have had until now, they will be able to tool up the programme 
to uh, to deliver a million vaccines a month in the uh, in in the second quarter. L- very little of what I have seen over the first quarter fills me with confidence that uh, that this will be so. But I think if the government bungle this bit, as Jen rightly says, if they bungle uh, the next couple of months, then I think the consequences for them could be limitless. On the other hand, if it isn't bungled and if the vaccine rollout goes uh, as people in government hope it will, then I think we're in a different situation. And you look at, say, the situation in the UK where Boris Johnson's government made an absolute and complete hames of the first 12 months or much of the first 12 months of management of this, but got the bounce of the ball, made some wise judgments and got the bounce of the ball on uh, on vaccine rollout and is now surfing a wave of popularity, having been seen by many voters to have got that bit, um, not just right, but got that an awful lot uh, got those decisions um, uh, an, an, an awful lot better than uh, than the European counterparts. So you know that is that is possible as well. In the medium term, I think the best that the government can uh, hope for is that you know not so much that it gets a political dividend out of the management of this, but let us not forget that Fine Gael's poll numbers are still to some degree reflective of the public's view that it did a very good job in the management of the first phase of the pandemic when it was leading government. And until just before Christmas and that third wave, the government's approval ratings were actually pretty high and people thought the government was doing a good job. That is, the, the present government, the coalition government, was doing a good job of managing the pandemic. I suspect so that even if the government can resuscitate that feeling amongst voters through a an effective management of the vaccination programme and the reopening, that it won't deliver a political dividend, but it won't destroy them. I mean, you know, to go back to look at, you know, in terms of political uh, political dividends, you know, um, if, if, if you think that having been seen to manage... Uh, you know, uh, to, to to manage a great national challenge effectively delivers an election for um, uh, for an incumbent government. Then let me introduce you to my friend Brexit. And um, so I think what the government needs to do is avoid being destroyed, which is possible, and that's probably the best it can hope. Mm-hmm. Jen, I think what Pat says that is is absolutely convincing and and right, and it's everything depends upon implementation and delivery over the next several months. But that's for the government. And to go back to that kind of question within a question that was in there about Fianna Fáil, I wonder, in retrospect, when we look back on this period in time, the decision not just to go into government, but to take up the Taoiseach ship for the first half of this uh, of this government's term, to take on really all the most prominent, contentious and difficult senior cabinet positions, health and housing and education and to, you know, with a view towards delivery. Now, Fine Gael will come back into the Taoiseach ship if this government survives into 2022, 2023, 2024. I wonder how this, the way this particular Game of Thrones has been played and will be played, how that will be seen in retrospect. Well, if I can compare it to the pandemic... <laughs> Um, there is the containment phase and then there is the mitigation phase. 
So I do agree that the first two years of this, if you look at it from their perspective, would appear to be potentially the most difficult. But actually, the second phase of this government, when uh, the rotating Taoiseach arrangement changes over, if indeed that does happen, which it looks like it will, but you never really know, um, the decisions that have to be made um, towards, towards the latter stage of this government will be difficult because it will involve clawing back uh, our way in terms of public finances. And it will involve some difficult decisions to be made. And we don't really have a clear indication right now of what the thinking is. But, you know, it it, it will involve something unpalatable anyway for the public. And you, you can't help but think that when you get towards the end stages of the government, not only will they have to deal with that and whatever very unpleasant message that will have to be delivered to the public on foot of that, um, there, there will also be the aspect of accounting for yourself. So if you look at the other big issue, um, it's housing. And that issue is not going away. And in fact, it's just getting worse because obviously we've had the construction lockdown. That uh, demand for property is still there. The supply is not catching up. Uh, we're still stymied in that regard. Dara O'Brien's uh, various housing policies are being very much, uh, I wouldn't say trashed, but very heavily criticised by various different quarters. And when you get to the end stage of the government and they look back and say, what did we do at this ma- for this massive problem that emerged in the 2020 general election? And if you go by their current figures, it's not going to be a good message. That just gives the, you know, it basically gives the straight to Sinn Féin. And I think that the message that has to be delivered and the, the, the mitigation in the second phase of government will be extremely difficult. Um, so... Perhaps this is the easier phase after all. God, if this is the easier phase, that really says something about the the time ahead. Listen, time is unfortunately has run out uh, for us as well, which is which is a pity because we had some other really good questions which I'd like to have got to, and not all of them were about COVID. They were more broadly about the political scene. And thank you for those, and we'll try to use those to inform our coverage in this podcast in the in the weeks and the months ahead. But for the moment, thanks very much to Pat and to Jennifer, our producer Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan. And if you would like to get in touch with us, you can always drop us a line at politics. Pod- podcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, happy St. Patrick's Day and thanks very much indeed for listening.